0: This sermon is part two from last week, but you need not have been here to catch up or or catch where we are. We're looking at one-liners in chapter 12. The book of Romans, as Ken said a few moments ago, it pivots here in chapter 12. If you're not familiar with the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters gives us what God has done for us. And then chapters 12 to the end, uh, what our response is. And not only are we told uh, in chapters 1 through 11 what God has done for us, but even in being told what to do in response, we're also told correspondingly how God is still doing for us and that he is resourcing us to live among Christians and non-Christians to live faithful to Jesus who flawlessly embodied everything that's here in verses 9 where we were last week through verse 13 and now verses 14 through 21 today. Everything here has its shape and its substance in Jesus' own life. Paul wasn't just picking things out of the air. These aren't pet peeves that Paul is addressing or things that he wishes you know, he saw differently. This is looking at the life of Jesus, seeing how it was that he lived, and commending it to his people. We're not innovators in following Jesus Uh, We are responders. We're responding to grace. We're recipients of grace. And therefore, because of Jesus, we're interested in getting pulled out of ourselves and others. We began going to talk about that last week, continue to talk about it this week. What's before us in these verses that Eli just read and the verses we looked at last week are the forms, the templates, if you will, of what it looks like when you're getting pulled out of yourself into the lives of others, both uh, people inside the church, people outside the church, what kinds of practices we give ourselves to, what we prioritize as God does His work in and through us to pull ourselves or pull us out of ourselves into others so that we get more of Him. I don't know that I could emphasize that enough, that that's the goal. It's never obedience for its own sake. It's never even others for their own sake. We get pulled out of ourselves into others so that we get more of the one in whom the fullness of God dwells, Jesus Christ. If you live Jesus' way, you see Jesus in the way that you begin interacting with others. Now, uh, what I want to do, uh, Eli read verses 14 and 15 to start, but I'm, I'm going to come back to those next week as a way of getting us into verse 13. We need a little, or chapter 13, I should say. We need a bridge. And so I'm going to take verses 14 and 15. We just read them. We'll come back to them next week as we move into chapter 13 because I think they, they, they help um, get us into that chapter that is to follow. But what we're going to do now is picking up at verse 16, we're just going to walk through these verse by verse. Uh, Last week, I, I gave you two headings under which to put verses 9 through 13. We looked at insider practices and outsider practices. But now in verses 14 down through 21, we have insider and outsider practices both. They're really woven together here, and they all feed one another. So now looking at verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Uh, Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. It's not the first time he's told us this. If you look back up in verse 3, where we were two weeks ago, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Two weeks ago in verse 3, we found this passage teaches That God forms our self-perception to where conceit and its cousins do not work for us any longer. Why not? Well, looking at verse 16, living in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. If you just take the, the last section there, verse 16, never be wise in your own sight. Why not? Because inevitably, if you're wise in your own sight, you will repel others. Now, I suppose there are some people who are wise and on sight who attract others who like that, but most of the time in the community of Christ and the wider world outside it, if if your conceit takes the form, uh, uh, the brash form of of your your braggadocious, you like to hear yourself talk, like the sound of your own voice. Everybody thinks that about preachers, if you only knew. Uh, in my own case, how much I don't uh, like mine. Or uh, it takes the form, this, this kind of conceit that he's really zeroing in on here in verse 16, it can take a more insecure form. Uh, there are plenty of examples of being wise in my own side that's really just masking insecurity. I, I want to project that I know a lot about X subject or that, uh, that I don't have any needs, you know, because um, I have this insecurity. But all of these one liners, tried to point this out last week, where again, you can move through this really woodenly and you can say this and then this and then this, but they really all flow together and and they, and they you, you live in harmony with one another, verse 16, uh, to get more of Jesus among his people and we work against the haughtiness as verse 16 goes on, uh, the haughtiness that keeps us from getting into the lives of others, particularly those very unlike us and we're never wise in our own sight because we miss a vital part of relating to Jesus when we are and that is how he works in and through his people. All of these one-liners situate us relationally because the largest part, hear me carefully, the largest part of growth, development, maturity in our faith, faith in Jesus, is learning to relate to insiders and outsiders both. This is why the New Testament when you sort of break it down in component parts, there's something like 25 one another statements in the New Testament. You've got one here in verse 16, "Live in harmony with one another." And you've got other places "love one another," "forgive one another," etc. and so on. About 25 of those and they're repeated hundreds of times all throughout the New Testament. That's because the largest part of our growth and maturity in Jesus is learning to relate to insiders, those with whom we share an allegiance to Jesus, and outsiders those with whom we don't yet, maybe never will. God knows we can struggle with this. Again, I say, as I've said the last couple of weeks, the New Testament never wastes its commands. It doesn't tell us to do what just comes already natural to us. You're never told to breathe. You're never told to eat. But you are told to do those things that you might otherwise shy away from or just neglect or avoid or just simply say, I I don't want to do that. You're not going to ask that of me. Our learning curve can be steep. Thinking about verse 16, I I thought of Steve Brown's uh, book, Three Free Sins, in which he uh, wrote about having to counter his natural conceit with what he calls his uh, bingo retort. (laughs) This is uh, classic Steve Brown, if you know who Steve Brown is, uh, Presbyterian minister out of Florida has a radio program called Key Life. He says, uh, one time I spoke for the national gathering of my denomination, that's the Presbyterian Church in America, Independent Pres, down the road is is a PCA church, and I said some rather controversial things. After my session, I was confronted by a serious young man in a three-piece suit with a concerned look on his face. Dr. Brown, he said, what you said today grieved my heart. Grieved your heart, I responded. There is nothing big enough here to grieve your heart. We're one of the smallest denominations in America, and I'm a peon. Find something bigger to grieve your heart. You don't want to hear, he said quietly and with a godly patience, what a fellow pastor says? I thought about it for a moment, said, No, not really. (laughs) You got to know Steve Brown to know this. Uh, But if you want to say something and be honest about it, I'll listen at least a while. I think, he said, his voice rising for the first time, really spiritual people don't shout, but he was close. I think that you are arrogant, rude, and prideful. You know what I said to him in reply? Bingo. You have read me well, but I'm better than I was. Your heart would have been even more grieved five years ago, and it would be even more grieved if you knew the whole truth about me now. He said, we ended up talking for over an hour, and he eventually loosened his tie. All things considered, it was rather honest and a good discussion, but that's not the point. The point is how I felt when I said bingo. Once I said that, I had an incredibly wonderful feeling of freedom and joy. Now, generally, I would have not defended myself. I am quite good at doing that. I would have engaged him in a debate, and I would have eaten his lunch. I have a glib tongue, and I know how to use it. I may have worked to belittle him and his judgmental spirit. Any preacher can do that well. But I didn't. I just told him that he'd read me well and let it develop from there. Do you know what I experienced with that one word, bingo? I felt free. In fact, it felt so good, I've decided to do it more. I call it the bingo retort. Someone says to me, you're wrong, bingo, I say. I've been wrong at least 50% of the time. You're selfish, bingo. My mother said the same thing and my wife says it too. You're not living up to your potential, bingo. And if it's okay with you, I'm not gonna live up to my potential a little while longer. (laughs) I love Steve Brown. He really is a refreshing guy. You're not fit to be a Christian. Bingo. That's why Christ died for me. You're a preacher. You're certainly not spiritually qualified to be a preacher. Bingo. I've been saying the same thing to God for years. How can you be a Christian and say or do that? Bingo. I sometimes wonder that myself. What I appreciate about that is that in his own wonderful way, He's taking verse 16 actually very seriously, but he's not taking himself so seriously. And there is a a liberty in that and a joy that comes from that. He's not giving himself a pass. He's telling us what it looks like with his skin on it, what it looks like for him when you're getting pulled out of yourself by God. Again, we're just going to walk through these verses here from verse 16 now to verse 17 repay no one evil for evil let's just take one clause at a time repay no one evil for evil why is this here because we have a tendency to externalize evil for one we also have a tendency towards self-deceit but we have a tendency to externalize evil to 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 think that it's, it's the really bad stuff in the world. That's what's evil. That's what we need to condemn and, and withstand, and we do. But evil is not external to ourselves. i actually learned this in believing in Jesus. And you do realize if you want to fight evil, a lot of us want to fight the great evils of our time, and, and we need those who do, but something has to first be done about the evil in yourself. The Spirit of God has to open your eyes and mind to how how, how easily self-deceived we are in this, uh, like how we want to externalize evil from ourselves, think it's somebody else's problem, but also how every time we repay evil for evil, we find a way to justify it, even to sanctify it. These one-liners, this, this whole passage, it's kind of like puzzle pieces. If you've ever done a big puzzle You've got it all laid out there on the table, and and you've got the picture. The picture is Jesus, how he he lived his life. And, And as we put these pieces together, and sometimes it's difficult to find how the pieces match up, but the picture formed when the pieces come together is the community of Christ in the world. How we're responding to each other, how we're responding to those on the outside of our community, we are demonstrating within that a response to God. We're demonstrating our own need for grace at the same time. But putting 16 and 17 together here, if my conceit is not in check, I will repay someone evil for evil. I have. I'll do it to insiders, those who share with me in allegiance to Christ, I'll do it to outsiders if my conceit is not in check. What gets my conceit in check? I gotta get pulled out of myself. And and, and the only person who can do that. As good as Lynn is, I often say in our marriage, Lynn is the Christian, I'm the pastor. As good as Lynn is, she can't pull that out of me. The best example in this room can't ultimately pull that out of me. As good as a model as you are, it has to be a transference of my sin for his life, my faults for his grace. I have to be captivated by that. Again, this passage situates us relationally. The body of Christ is not an accident, but it's an instrument that God uses to develop me and all of us in the image and likeness of his son who was flawless in all of this. We will never be, but we can be better than we were. We can grow we, we can, at the end of every year, assess in, in the balance of this year, whatever has happened to me this year, have I grown in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? And we can mark that. There's sometimes in ways we do that that can be artificial, but we mark it in relationships. Relationships don't just expose you. They, they also affirm you. I mean, how do I know I'm growing in these areas? Somebody has to tell me. Somebody has to tell me, hey, you know, five years ago, you would have been very dismissive of me, but you were really patient with me this time, and and I'm seeing growth. How am I seeing it? Because I did a self-study? No. Because somebody I'm in relationship with said, I see improvement. I see evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life breaking this weakness down in you or this uh, th- this thing that, that, that is part of your, your sin nature and, and, and what's coming out of it, even though it still may be difficult for you, is something better. This passage situates us relationally. We exist in a web of relationships. I mean, you can try to do life on your own, and a lot of people do. There are, there are people who are loners even in the church, but it's a shared world. It's a shared church. Anticipate some friction. <laughs> I mean, look at verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul recognizes our fallenness is such. Putting what's here in verse 18 with the last part of verse 17. Never be wise. That's actually 16. Uh, Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Last part of verse 17. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do you note the all? Into verse 17. All. First part of 17. Repay no one. You could say, don't repay anyone within all. Evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. All, all, all. All encompasses everyone. That's a tall order, isn't it? Because some among all will not allow your attempt to live peaceably with them. We've all had this experience. And we're all responsible for these experiences with others. We're not giving ourselves a pass in admitting. There are times and occasions where you have done everything you know to do to try to live peaceably with person X, but some fault in you is still found. You've aimed at peace, you've worked for peace, but we never quite get there. There are these situations. In fact, as a pastor, I've been asked to mediate in a number of them through the years where people in the church get sideways and they need that third-party mediation to try to, to help them reconcile. Sometimes that happens, and sometimes it doesn't. Peace would be, verse 18 says, live peaceably with all. Peace, how you know you've reached that beach. Peace is where we've gotten beyond the conflict. It's no longer between us. Yes, it's part of our memory. Now it's part of our shared story. I was once mad at you. We were once sideways. We were once even enemies, but now no more, which is the very thing we say about our relationship to God, isn't it? Thanks to Jesus taking the cross, the first thing you heard when you came in this room from this pulpit this morning was Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And the reason is due to peace with God, peace as opposed to a truce, which is more of a ceasefire, a truce is. You remain on your side and I'll remain on mine. But peace is reconciling The conflict is there in our memory, but it's no longer between us. We're not relating through the conflict. At best, that's a truce. But peace, the reason peace is important to us is it's about reconciliation. Reconciliation is the heartbeat of the gospel of God to us in Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who did what? took on all the the fault of, of, of the conflict. We were his enemies, but he gave himself for us. He gave himself to us. That's incredible self-giving. We were taught it earlier in Romans. This is why, to remind you of where we are here in this chapter, look back up at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, verse 1, by the mercies of God, The mercies of God encompass all that we've been instructed in the first 11 chapters about our sinfulness and its unrighteous and self-righteous expression, our enmity with God and with one another, both inside and outside the body. And what Jesus did to take all of that problem upon himself and to justify us and now sanctifying us and will glorify us inevitably when we're home someday and sin is no longer an option... But for now, we work in this material that we have here in chapter 12. And the reason that the instruction is comprehensive, all these alls here, is because there's, there's no part of your life Jesus doesn't have something to do with. We are really good at compartmentalizing. But the Lord is not a compartmentalizer. It's comprehensive. And so verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Why all? Well, whom do you want to exclude from the grace of God? Really? I mean, who do you, who do you want to miss out on the mercy of God? Is it, is, it, is it really possible that you could want that for someone? Believing the gospel fundamentally changes how we see people. Everybody around us, now that we're in Christ, everybody around us is somebody the Lord has redeemed or somebody the Lord might redeem, so far as we know. This is why we even love our enemies. Not expecting them to love us in return, and neither is love uh, of warmth of feeling toward them. It is wanting them to experience the peace with God that we experience. It's it's never cutting them off from the transformative reach of Jesus. But what if it turns out your enemy is inside the church? It's a fellow believer. Being peaceable is not refusing to engage in conflict. There are some things that are worth fighting for. As I get older, the list grows down to very fewer. Of the things I used to fight about everything, especially when you first come out of seminary, you're loaded for bear, as Howard Hendricks says, and uh, and you want to show your big bear rifle off and how you can knock down all these uh, counter arguments. But then you get into people's lives and you realize there's complications and complexities there that you didn't take into account. And it's not that the truth is any less truth. In fact, as you get older in this, the truth becomes even more important and vital to you. But you start to realize that there are a lot of things we fuss and fight over that aren't really worth the effort. Being peaceable is at times when conflict is unavoidable, when there's been a clash, when we're on opposite sides of a point or uh, we have a personality uh, issue. Being peaceable is refusing to let that conflict have the last word. And look how he puts this in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live it peaceably with all. In other words, Paul is basically saying, reading between the lines, I know there are variables. I understand how it is among people. People in the first century not much different from people in the 21st century in this way and and how we naturally are. Sometimes the conflict will have the last word, despite our efforts, best efforts to the contrary. Relationships do end, and I don't say that flippantly. Sometimes we just can't get past something between us. There are a lot of reasons for that. Some of them are are, are quite complicated. I I don't have easy answers for us in the pursuit of living peaceably with all. I I just don't uh, preach in such a way, and maybe I'm wrong in this, where I I take a, a, a passage like this and say, let me give you five ways to live peaceably with all. I just don't find that it works like that. I mean, it might satisfy your, your need to, to write something down and, and have something to carry with you, but I don't know that it's actually going to really get into the sinew of your life. I mean, I find that the only way I'm going to practice these things is to stay on my face before the Lord. It's not that I got all this teaching and now, oh, good, you know, I've got five ways to live peaceably with all people. I put it on my refrigerator and I re- reference it. I mean, you mechanics work, but for me I don't have easy answers in the pursuit of living peaceably with all. I'm challenged often on this point and I know that it doesn't just depend on us but look at the way verse 18 is phrased. A lot of responsibility is placed on us. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Again these verses are about our response to God and in my experience he doesn't exactly make us reconcile with anyone in the sense of forcing us. He could. I mean, think about if God forced you to obey. He could, and you wouldn't be able to say anything about it. But wouldn't it be a, a quite a different experience in the church? I found the way God works on us is through the gospel applied to us. That is, the gospel is preached to the church over and over again. We are told, reminded, instructed in both direct and indirect ways what God has done for us. I used to, uh, I knew a pastor who said, you know, he, he, um, he didn't preach on giving. He said, I just teach people about the grace of God and the wallet's open. <laughs> yeah. Now, he did preach on giving, but he was trying to make a larger point. You can preach on certain subjects. You can take a passage like this and be very preachy. And you're not necessarily necessarily serving. I feel like I'm talking to a homiletics class right now. Sorry, I'm treating you like a class, but I'm I'm on this particular point. How do we change? That's that's the thing that we're all interested in. And how we change is you can take a real mechanical approach, and you can say, well, I'm working on this, and I'm working on this, and I'm working on this, and that's fine. Or you can say, you know, none of this I'm going to be able to do. All of this I go astray from unless there is a a cultivation within my own soul working out in relationships, confirmed in relationships, of worship of Jesus, of making more and much of Him. I found that the way God works in us to change us is how he resets us, even in passages like this one, because what I think happens is a lot of us come to passages like this one and we groan internally. Oh, here's where my real, my real Christian self, my disappointing Christian self is going to be exposed. I was like that for years, even though I tried to give the great facade that I've got all this together. You want to know how to you know, repay no one evil for you? Just check with me. I'll tell you about it in Greek, you know. And yet what I found is that I, I wasn't doing that in actual experience and I was, I was running into situations where some really hard junk was coming out of me toward people and I was like, what is the deal? How come Lynn's the Christian and I'm the pastor, you know? And, and, and it was not that I was deficient in truth or understanding, it was I didn't understand the gospel. I understood the gospel as a transaction with God that gets me to heaven. I didn't understand the transformative aspect of the gospel. It took a lot of suffering, actually, in my life for me to understand that. How we're reset in passages like this one. I no longer see these as lists. Do this, don't do this, in order to be a good person. I see this as here's the places where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to meet me personally. In my failures, in my faults, in my going the other direction, in my saying, no, I don't want to do that. And he'll say, I'm patient. I'll work with you. You're going to do it. But you're not going to do it as me putting your arm behind your back. You're going to do it because I'm going to overwhelm you as you stay with this by my care and my goodness and my grace to you. And ultimately, you'll want what I want for you. And sure enough, in my life, I got to my 30s, started wanting more of the things you want for me. got to my 40s, got to my 50s. I can't wait for 60s, 70s, and 80s. Because that means that I'm going to want that much more when I get to those ages, the things that He wants for me. In fact, you know, I mentioned indirect ways. Look at verse 19, the lead-off word, beloved. How many of you read past that? Isn't it so easy to read past this word, beloved? But it's due to the mercies that are new every morning that we're loved by Him, and this makes the bigger difference in obeying Him. Right after telling us in verse 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, he then says, beloved. This is all that I have in, in Christ with God, the, the love of God. Makes a complete difference in obeying him. I, I'm not obeying to get or keep his love, but because I already have it. Thus I know he wants my good. Never avenge yourselves, beloved, verse 19, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. Repay who? Repay those people with whom it isn't possible to be peaceable in context. What do you want if you you can't even work a truce, much less peace? You'll want to avenge yourself. Because for a lot of us, if there's a real or even just a perceived wrong, boy, we want to fix it. It works on our pride. It, it, It calls out our ego. The call of Christ here in verse 19 to never avenge ourselves, notice how it's put. It's beloved people who are under this call. That makes a huge difference because what that takes you to is your redemption. And redeemed people don't have to avenge ourselves. We've already had that done for us by Jesus Christ in the court of God where it matters. I've told you before that one of the steepest growth curves being God's people is letting God's opinion of us, what God thinks of me, count more than any other's opinion of me now that can be abused it doesn't mean that we run roughshod over people or live unaccountable but I don't need to avenge myself or my tribe when I have a redeemer try to clear up misunderstandings with a brother or sister sure yeah that's gonna happen engage in debate at times yes but vengeance is about meeting out ultimate justice And God always says to us when we eye that chair and we want to sit in it, get out of my chair. It's not your place to mete out ultimate justice. I'm a better justice maker than you are. And so he says, verse 19 through 21, we'll finish up. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not Be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And what is specifically that good? In the context of Romans, isn't it the good of the gospel? Which, by the mercies of God that starts this chapter, he works to pull me out of myself and others? Because that's how I'm going to encounter Jesus and all his goodness. It's not something I admire as in a museum. Jesus and his goodness are on the printed page. It's It's that the ink gets into my bloodstream. And He works to pull me out of myself into others. This is how I encounter Jesus in all His goodness. His peace, His patience, His love which is so radical. In all its richness, the New Testament, um, as it presents it, to preach the grace of God and the love of God, as the New Testament presents it, is to risk uh, being thought liberal, <laughs> being thought theologically indiscriminate, reckless. Martin Lloyd Jones, great preacher of yesteryear in London, said, You'll get accused of all that when you're preaching the free grace of the Lord Jesus. It's inevitable. We always want to put a but. Yes, but. Has it ever occurred to you, it could be that I worship my conservatism more than I worship actually Jesus Christ? That could be. You know, we're conservative people here. Let's try not to let conservatism make us insular and separatist and a slave to fear and paranoia. That's the dark side of it. I mean, doesn't verse 20 imply some proximity? If your enemy is hungry, feed him, that means you're there. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, that means you're there. You're within reach. Notice that. And by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 20, I mean, you, you take away his leverage when you, when you show concern for his person or his people, his tribe. The, the imagery of burning coals on the head, it's not that you want to fire him up to be more passionately against you or to make it where he can't stand you. That, that's when we repay evil for evil. That's when we avenge ourselves. The, the imagery here, well... Remember Isaiah six, a couple months ago? The burning coal touched to Isaiah's lips. Isaiah gets this vision of Jesus. John 12 tells us it's Jesus he sees in the temple in Isaiah's vision, Isaiah six. And he hears the seraphim angels continually drawing attention to the Lord's holiness. And what does Isaiah say? Woe is me, I'm undone. I don't praise like they do. And in fact, my lips are unclean. I live among a people of unclean lips. And those people happen to be God's people which made the uncleanness worse. But that burning coal that the angel is instructed by Jesus to take and touch to the lips of Isaiah so that Isaiah can be God's instrument, his mouthpiece to talk to people under judgment about a coming grace in their Messiah who would be Jesus. It's a picture of purification, atonement even. And so when you don't avenge yourself on your enemy but you leave that to the Lord, the, the coals are the, are the picture of, uh, of, a, of a possible purification. In other words, the enemy could be turned into a friend. You, you, you're, you're placing your hope in the redemption of God and God's grace and goodness to them. Your enemies need to be purified by him, to, to move toward repentance if it's an insider, to, to move toward reconciliation with God if it's an outsider. I know this is difficult. But when you don't avenge yourself on one who has wronged you or repay them evil for evil, you don't work to get even with them, you're you're leaving the instrumentality of judgment to God. That's what these verses here are telling us. In chapter 13, Paul is going to go right to the role of government as an avenger of God. Interesting. But when we forgive another's fault against us, you're saying God is a better justice maker than I am. Now let me tell you this, and we'll be done for fast time. You've heard of the Nobel Peace Prize. Elie Wiesel was a winner of it back in the 80s. A lot of you know the name Elie Wiesel. He was a Holocaust survivor. I've read his book Night. Perhaps you have too about his experiences at Auschwitz and Buchenwald. And this being Memorial Day weekend we think of the costs paid to liberate such places and stop the spread of an ideology that was deeply anti-Christ in practice. Wiesel was thought of generally as a conscience for humanity. He died a few years ago. He was thought of as a promoter of peace. Wiesel had a run-in with Bernie Madoff. Remember Bernie Madoff, the great crash in 2008. The investor who ran a Ponzi scheme cheated investors out of fortunes. Wiesel, this great humanitarian icon, was one of Madoff's investors. Both men were Jewish. And so now Wiesel had to deal with the sense of betrayal that one of his own had, uh, had done this to him as he had done to others. And this incensed Ellie Wiesel so much, Bernie Madoff's deceit of him, that Wiesel said this publicly, I would like him, Bernie Madoff, to be, this is a Nobel Peace Prize winner saying this, I would like him to be in a solitary cell with only a screen, and on that screen for at least five years of his life, every day and every night, there should be pictures of his victims, one after the other after the other, all the time a voice saying, look what you've done to this old lady. Look what you've done to that child. Look what you've done, nothing else. Now in one sense, that's completely a completely understandable human response to a great injustice. Those guilty of spe- spectacular offense, even from a Nobel Prize laureate, you can understand it. But don't we all also realize we cannot sustain that kind of vengefulness? It will consume you. The author in whose essay I found that little vignette about Wiesel and Madoff, the author is not a Christian, and he called Wiesel's vengefulness a sorry spectacle why did he do that because he had higher hopes for a Nobel Peace Prize winner he didn't say that because Wiesel's not entitled to be upset at Madoff or because Madoff didn't deserve swift justice but there's a reason punishments for crimes are not to be cruel or unusual that's because it checks the natural human tendency to vengeance And we overdo it. What's the point here? You can be regarded even one of the world's top humanitarians. And you can be just like everybody else when it comes to the desire for vengeance. That desire will fill us with all kinds of cruel and unusual intentions. We go into the heart of ourselves. We see it's dark in there. But we like it. And we conclude, I can make that work for me. I must make that work for me. What pulls that desire out of us is not the best humanity can muster, a Nobel Peace Prize, as good as that is. What pulls that out of us is an encounter with the living Prince of Peace who comes to us in our sin, enters our darkness, and says, there's there's no darkness in you that I, I can't be the light of. And enlighten and and go deeper still. Everything has its shape and substance in Jesus' own flawless life. And the goal in putting these things into practice, practicing repentance when we don't do these things, is to get more of Jesus, who did not avenge himself on you and me, though we contributed to his cross. And going there, we put him there. But instead, he gave us mercy and then gives us freedom in his name and resources us ongoing to live among insiders and outsiders in such ways that all around us know that we have a redeemer which is the most important thing anybody can know about you. Would you stand with me? Let's pray and be dismissed. Our friends have a luncheon 12 o'clock in the fellowship hall. We'd love to have you join them hear more about their ministry Lord, we thank you for this truth, it's, uh, lists like this are notorious for, sort of, we go, we go out with, we feel like more baggage than we came in with. But I hope, Lord, that uh, these, your people have heard today um, a note of, of grace in the midst of everything you've given us to do, that the key is to look to Jesus. And, Lord, that we would do that. We would be found among, counted among people who it's obvious that there is a redemptive aspect to our lives. Lord, some of us struggle greatly. Some of us are in situations, circumstances where it's really hard relationally for us. Some of our relationships are very, very taxing. And we find this very difficult to do. And it would be, Lord, if it was just words on a page. It was just a, a, a good thing to commend to us on a Sunday morning, but it's more than that. This is how we encounter Jesus among his people. This is how we encounter the lordship of Jesus over the world. This is how we learn how to trust you and how to taste and see over and over again that you are good. And I pray that you would help us in this. We are weak. We confess our weakness and our reluctance and our resistance. But Lord, we also confess that we are beloved. And we've been shown great mercies because of what you've done for us, and so we thank you. And now finally, brothers, sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.